You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And Before we dive into this Friday show, I want to remind you listeners out there that you can get a VIP access membership to 24-7 Sports and Duck Territory for $1 for your first month. And then thereafter that, it goes to $9.95. Or you could try our seven-day free trial, which gets you uh, your annual membership, which will be billed out one time, $75.18. CBS All Access, Inside Scoop, Expert Analysis, read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. You get it all with a membership to duckterritory.com. Now, let's go into this show, Eric, and it's um, turning into, it's not turning into it, it's become the norm for this Oregon men's basketball team to play like they are a Elite Eight Final Four caliber team in the NCAA tournament when they play at home, and then when they go on the road, they are certainly a good basketball team, but at the same time, they, they play like they're susceptible to a, a 5-12 seed loss in the NCAA tournament. And that was kind of on display a little bit at Arizona State. The Sun Devils win this game 77-72, to a game in which Oregon was down double digits at the half. They were down 11 points. They were down double digits with, like, I want to say 14, 12 minutes to go in the game. And they found a way all the way back to tie it with – uh, about seven minutes to go, and then Oregon had two straight possessions with the basketball. Uh, Chris Duarte was shooting a front end of a one-on-one free throw on their first possession to take the lead, their, own, their first lead of the game, which if he would have made it, he missed. And then the next possession, they got a defensive stop, and then Oregon got the ball again. Peyton Pritchard missed a layup that, quite honestly, he finishes most games. And then ASU responded with a 6-0 run, and then that, that was basically as close as Oregon ever got uh, to, to winning this game. And they come out of it 77-72. They're now 20-7 and seven, 20-7 overall, 9-5 and five in conference play. And the big thing here is they went from first to fourth in the Pac-12 standings. Um, just yet again, another game where you're just kind of scratching your head because they played unbelievably good basketball for about – seven or eight minutes, and for about 30 minutes, they played kind of mediocre basketball, and it cost them. Yeah, and, and Matt, I, you know, you look at the numbers here, and it took them about six minutes to get their second field goal of the game. They started out really, really yeah. slow. Obviously, that first half, only 23 points. To score 49 in the second, to tie it, to get all the way back, that feels like it's just kind of the story of this team this year of there will be moments where they're incredibly infuriating to watch and then moments of, I don't want to say greatness, but moments where they're, where they're really effective and efficient. Um, what was going right in the second half when they were offensively at least able to almost score 50 and what was going wrong in the first where they only scored 23 and then had a couple sequences yeah. where they just couldn't score? Yeah, well, I put on Twitter and I put on – our message board in our game thread at halftime that if Oregon did three things, they would win this game. If they turned the ball, if they stopped turning the ball over, they, they would have a chance at winning. If, uh, they stopped fouling and got out of foul trouble, they would have a chance at winning the game. They would win the game. And if they attacked the basket and, and had the, had the offensive flow going towards the hoop, it didn't necessarily mean that 
everything has to be, you know, all their shots that need to be layups or, or short jump shots and whatnot. Just have the action go towards the hoop and make Arizona State's defense start backpedaling a little bit. And then you can kick it out to open guys and whatnot. They did those three things, they would win the game. And for the most part, they they did that in the second half. But then, unfortunately, they had some really costly turnovers late in the game. They had Peyton Pritchard pick up a fourth foul, which I thought was bogus of a call. But then yeah. he had a boneheaded, you know, foul call a couple minutes later when, when there was two minutes and 15 seconds left in the game. I think they were down four or five points at that point in time. And he just blatantly just reached across the body of Alonzo Verge and fouled him. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking there. Maybe he thought he had three fouls. I don't know. But he fouls out of the game with two minutes and 15 seconds to play. And that was basically the hammer for Oregon once he left the floor. But they just kind of got away with what got them back into the game. And that was stop fouling. That was stop turning the ball over. And that was attacking the basket. And I mean, you look at this game and you look at the numbers. If you don't watch this game, you go, okay, Oregon had 18 points from Peyton Pritchard. They had 18 points from Will Richardson, 10 points from Chris Duarte. Shakur Jusen gave you eight points. Addison Patterson gave you eight points off the bench. That's a really good game. Like, yeah. they've got balanced scoring. They've, they've got, you know, they're, they're two leaders and, and Pritchard and Richardson, you know, carrying, doing the bulk of the load, but they're not alone with, with what, 20, 36 points? Or yeah, 26 points coming from two up, three other guys. Um, you look at this and say, yeah, they, that's a really good game. But the issue is that first half, they had 13, they had, 11 turnovers at halftime. They had more turnovers in the first half than they did made field goals. And that's ultimately like everyone talks about, oh, this, this foul call here late in the game cost us the game or uh, this two-minute stretch where we didn't score in the in, the, in, in late in the second half. Is, that's why we lost. You know, games can be won. Games can be lost in the first half. And Oregon's inability to protect the basketball and – make baskets in the first half is why they lost because they built themselves too big of a hole and ASU Oregon had 16 turnovers. ASU scored 19 points off turnovers. They lost by five. I mean, you just eliminate half that you win the game. And I think that's what Dan Altman's going to tell his team. That's, and I'm sure he probably talked if in with the media, he's always about what you can control. And I put this on Twitter and, and and some of these numbers are actually good numbers for Oregon, but these are all things that they can control. Oregon committed 16 turnovers, 19 points by ASU off them. Ducks lost by five. You eliminate half of those, you win. Oregon shot 12 of 19 from the free throw line. They missed five. They missed seven free throws. They lose by five points. Those are things you can control. Oregon gave up sec, five second chance points. They lost by five. Rebound the basketball. Yes, five second chance points. Is good, but that's something you can literally control. You eliminate two of those three things, you win this game. And that's probably what's the most frustrating about this Oregon basketball team. And if you're a coach, this is probably why you lose so much sleep over at night over this team because yeah, they're, they're really good. And yet they also play like they're capable of losing to a 12 seed in the NCAA tournament. And those are the things that, that keep you up late at night is what are we doing that's not, that's preventing us from becoming that 
elite, consistent team. Because Oregon, look, Oregon has the ability to beat anybody in college basketball. I think. I, I mean, when we see them play at their best, they're they're unstoppable. But the problem is, is they're so up and down, Jekyll and Hyde, of when they're at their best. I was just gonna say the momentum of the season, especially in conference play, has like just never happened. I mean, they, they they've yet to have a win streak of more than four games in conference play, um, and they did follow that that four game win streak when they beat Washington, USC, UCLA, and Cal with two losses on the road to Stanford and Oregon State. Come back home, they win two games. It feels like things are going right, hitting the road. Same problem, lose to Arizona State. I think that's the thing that's been frustrating. Like you said, it, it has been such a Jacqueline Hyde team up and down season. A lot of it seems to be away from home versus at home. Uh, the positive is they do finish with three home games. But this Saturday's game with Arizona, Matt, like, I'm trying to think here in terms of seasons where Oregon is competing for a Pac-12 championship. There haven't been a lot of games more important this late in the season with a, I guess, like program like Arizona that I can think of during Danny Altman's tenure here. This, this game on Saturday feels extremely important. Um, obviously, you now look at the standings. You said it earlier. Oregon falls from a tie for first to fourth in the Pac-12. Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State all won their games yesterday. They are all now ahead of the Ducks in the Pac-12. Oregon tied with UCLA, which is kind of crazy that UCLA snuck up on them like that. But this, you know, the importance of this Oregon-Arizona game is, I, I think, crucial, Matt. What's your confidence level? Arizona's playing pretty good basketball right now, we should say. What's your confidence level in Oregon getting into Tucson um, and picking up a pivotal, pivotal split? Because if they lose this game, it becomes extremely difficult to, to see them winning the conference, I think. Yeah, this is a huge game. I mean, if Oregon wants to win the conference championship in the regular season, they have to win this game. It, there's just... It, it becomes too difficult. There's too many scenarios that you have to have go your way that you can rely on to win this league if Arizona beats Oregon on Saturday night. Great thing is, is you're only one game out of first place, and Colorado has to play UCLA. So Oregon is Oregon is going to be rooting for UCLA on Saturday afternoon and then hoping that they can walk out of McHale with a win. And then... In a perfect scenario, Oregon State beats Arizona State this weekend as well, and now you're back to square one. Everyone's all locked up back to where they were. Um, I, I think in that scenario, it, it would basically be a five-way tie for first place with Oregon playing three games at home to close out the season. That you know, That's why Saturday night is a must-win for Oregon, and if you lose, you drop to, to nine and six, and I went back and looked. Um, it's been like 10 years since a team has won the league with five losses in conference play. That was California in 2009. I can't recall, though, a team with six losses in league play winning the conference. So Oregon's going to have to go undefeated here on out. They've got – Oregon State's going to be a tough game, but it's at home. Stanford's going to be a tough game, but it's at home. They should blow out California. That game's at home. Arizona is a juggernaut. They are playing really good basketball. They've got a low post threat in Zeke Naji that's going to be very difficult for Oregon to stop. McHale is a difficult place to play. That being said, Oregon has, look, they've got the Pac-12 Player of the Year candidate, I think, in Peyton Pritchard. Uh, Will Richardson seems to have figured things out a little bit. Um, your Shakur Jusen's, you know, starting to, to round back into form and, and, and giving you something down low. For Oregon, but 
I look, you're gonna get your you're gonna get your eighteen from Pritchard. I think you're gonna get your fourteen from, from Richardson. Um Oregon needs Duarte to play well, and we should note that Duarte is dealing with a finger injury on his shooting hand, and his his percentages have significantly yeah. dropped since then. Uh we've 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 been told it's a broken finger. Um I think it's his pinky finger on his right hand, which is his shooting hand, and he shot like he shoots let me pull up the stats really quickly just so I get it right. But I think this is, you know, a really key piece of Oregon's struggles maybe the last three weeks. Since the Oregon State game, he heard it going into OSU. He's a 42% field goal shooter this season. But since he's broken his finger, he's down to 34%. Now, the bigger impact is on threes. On the year, he's 34.8%. And just think how many big three-pointers he's hit in, yeah. th- throughout this season. He's shooting 17% on threes this year. And against ASU, he missed three or four wide open looks on threes that he normally knocks, you know, one or two of those down. And I think that's been a huge, huge impact for Oregon uh, in his struggles uh, in Oregon struggles at that uh, on the road. And so you got to hope that Duarte can get out of this funk and maybe it's really just getting healthy. But I, I think Oregon wins at Arizona. If Richard, if Duarte, Mathis and Justin can, if those three guys, if they can give you 40 points, 30, 35 points, you're going to win the game. You know, I think one other thing we should mention here in terms of the Pac-12 standings, Oregon here with a loss to Arizona would be potentially putting itself in a position to lose a first-round bye in the Pac-12 tournament here yeah. in Vegas. Um, I mean, that's how and, – and it's so tight. And, and actually, we should say, like, the – the fact of tournament is going to be really, really fun to watch. I think you're going to go into that being like, there's like seven or eight teams that could win this. But for Oregon right now, yeah, I mean, they're tied with UCLA, uh, four fourth in the conference. They lose to Arizona and UCLA, uh, wins on Saturday. And, and you look up and Oregon would be outside of, uh, the top four in the Pac-12 with three to play. And again, I think you feel pretty good about coming home and, and, and hopefully winning your three home games and being 12 and six, even with the loss to Arizona. And that might get you a top four seed, but nothing is guaranteed and it's, such a strange season where there were have been so many, I shouldn't say so many, but there have been parts of the year where we felt pretty confident they were going to be either first or second in the conference. Um, but to be in a spot here with four games left where we're talking about them maybe being a team that plays the opening day in the Pac-12 tournament for, uh, you know, that would be that would be very disappointing, uh, you, know, you know, with the way this season has gone, Matt. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I should just say, you're probably really excited to go down to Vegas to watch this Pac-12 tournament because it does feel like the field's wide open, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like, typically in most years, you're like, oh man, like top four seed, we didn't get that, we had a bad year, we're not one of the, we're not a contender in the conference, it's gonna, it's gonna take a lot for us to to win the conference, like that's kind of like the fan approach to, I think, not making the top four for any team, not just Oregon, just for any team, like, if you don't make the top four, you're probably thinking, wow, we're not, we're not one of the better teams in the league this year. It's going to be difficult. But this season, I mean, your fifth place and your sixth place team are one and two games out of first place. And I mean, that's just, that's just kooky. I mean, you go into <laughs> yeah. this game thinking there's seven teams that legitimately could win this entire thing. And it's completely wide open, which is pretty, from an entertainment standpoint, 
That's exactly what you want. Now, probably from a national respect standpoint, you probably want that down to three or four teams because the league doesn't have six or seven ranked teams. Like if, if this was a deal where you had three top 10 teams and you had two more top 25 teams and then a sixth team was like a fringe top 25, then it's like, wow, this, this is just juggernaut of a conference. This year it's, it's very competitive internally and the Pac-12 is probably going to send five teams to the tournament, but Oregon's the highest ranked team at 14. They don't even have a top 10 team in the league. So. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Pramer. Scopo is with me as always. Recapped the ASU loss for Oregon and previewed the Arizona game there. Now let's switch sides to some basketball news. Um I think a little bit of a shocker, right? Satu Sabali announces that she's going pro after the season. And I think first and foremost, people are probably wondering why announce this now? And I think, Eric, you had probably a, a, a good point privately when we were discussing when the news came out of why she did it. Yeah, you know, and, and she did, she actually came out and, and said, and we should know, this is pretty unusual. And just first reaction, this is really significant for Oregon. Uh, let's I'll start there of like, you look at the 2021 season, and Sabali was probably going to be, if not the front runner, one of the top two or three front runners for National Player of the Year if she had returned. This is a team that would have been, I don't want to say they would have remained in a top five ranking, but they would have been pretty darn close to that with what they have uh, with her and the incoming class and some of the players on the bench this year. Um, but now, you, now you're losing four starters. I think that totally changes the trajectory for 2021. Maybe... Maybe it lessens some of the pressure for these freshmen to come in and be impact players and, and compete for a conference and a national championship mm-hmm. right away. But uh, this is significant, uh, absolutely. Um, in terms of the timing of it, uh, you know, the we remember last year how rushed Sabrina was making her decision after Oregon gets bounced from the Final Four um, by Baylor. You know, she basically has a couple of days to make a WNBA decision. I think this was 
Satu recognizing, hey, I saw how stressful this was for Sabrina a year ago. Let's just get this done with. I've already made the decision. I've, I've finalized what I want to do. Um, and, and it's ready. It's time for me to kind of get this weight off my shoulders. And she said as much. She did a sit down with Holly Rowe of ESPN, and, and this is the quote she gave. I really just wanted to get it behind me because so many people were just asking me about it. I was, it was kind of stressful. I feel like now I have my head free and I can practice with joy. So if this is, a, you know, if you're an Oregon fan and this is a thing where maybe this has been weighing on her and she's been playing really, really well lately, we should say. She's had a couple of games lately that weren't her best. Maybe this is a thing where that was kind of clouding some of her play, and, and maybe this will allow her to play more freely and 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 and, and at a higher level. And you know, you think about Asabli taking a step forward, and with the way the team is playing right now, that should scare everyone nationally. But yeah, the timing of this is a little bit strange. I think the decision probably to some some folks maybe felt a little bit surprising just because we just saw Sabrina. Uh, last year decided to come back, but Satu also cited the fact that her family back in Germany, um, you, you know, maybe aren't doing that well financially and that this could be a, a significant, uh, you know, financial, uh, move for her and her whole family. She's a bunch of younger siblings, uh, back, you know, a, a brother that's playing, I think, in the United States. Uh, she mentioned that, um, you know, they, they didn't even have like a pair of shoes to play basketball for their whole season and stuff like that. So there's, there's certainly other things that play here, but, uh, a, a huge and very significant thing, I think, and uh, one that really could impact the program long term. Like, I think if you would have had her for another year, that would have been another year you would have been a top five program. Now, I think you look at 2020, 21 and go, they're going to be really competitive. They're going to be fun. I and mean, I was still doing the math. I think they still have eight five stars on the roster. So <laughs> it's not like it's not it's not like the cupboard's completely bare. But at the same time, you're looking at it going. With Sabli leading the way, this would have been another year where, where maybe you're competing for a, a national championship. It's a deal in which I saw this idea kind of get thrown out a little bit when the news hit, and it was the window will be closed after this season to win a championship. I disagree. The window is closing, yes, but it's still open. It's just – Instead of having the window completely wide open, it's now maybe half open. And, you know, like next year, Aaron Boley is going to be this, you know, the, the name of the, of the team and her three point shooting is, is going to be really key for that squad. And they still have Sedona Prince, who is supposed to be an unbelievable player, a game changer, a game changing program player for Oregon down on the low post. Um, it was explained to me that, you know, she can, potentially even dunk in games. And just that gives you an yep. idea of who, you know, caliber of player she is. And, you know, look, I, I'm a firm believer that if Taylor Chavez was on a different team, her stats would be different because her first two years, she's had to play behind Sabrina. And, you know, ba- basically be Sabrina's backup. And I think, I think when she becomes a starter next season, She's not going to be Sabrina, but at the same time, like, I don't see a reason why she doesn't average close to 20 points a game. I mean, she's a good three-point shooter. She's a good player that can drive to the rim and score, and, you know, she she can distribute, so she's not just one-dimensional. And, like, I, I just don't I just don't see the reason why Oregon can't still be an Elite Eight caliber squad next season when you bank on the fact that, okay, Aaron Bully's a veteran. She'll probably play in – and two Final Fours and three Elite Eights at least 
Um, she'll, you, you've got Sedona Prince, who will be a low post threat that just, you don't have offensively. And it's crazy to say, considering Ruthie Hebert, um, she's just a different low post caliber player. And then you, you've got Taylor Chavez, who's experienced and a big time player. And then just a, a plethora of sophomores and freshmen that are all basically all American caliber players. Yeah, the thing with that's going to be really, I think, interesting to see is that it was so clear that it had Satu come back that she was going to be the, the focal point offensively, yes. that she was going to be yes. the first scoring option. Now it's wide open, and now it's going to be really interesting to see. I think, like, if if we were making a bet on who would be the leading scorer next year, my top two picks would be probably Chavez and Prince, but I'm also not willing to go like overlook. Maybe Aaron Bowley can step into it. She's been a supplemental part at Oregon. But she was, we should say, like the same recruiting class as Sabrina Inescu. Aaron Bowley was the national. She was higher ranked than Sabrina. I'm yeah, sure. so I mean, I, anyway, I know she was the Gatorade, I think, national player of the year, uh, the same year as Sabrina. So like the expectations when she signed with Notre Dame was she was going to be a special offensive player, and she's been a great three point shooter. Maybe she can, maybe in a bigger role next year, she can, uh, you know, expand her game, expand what she does offensively, and becomes a, a greater player her, her final year. Prince is, is, I think, a big wild card too, just because how 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 does she recover from this injury? You know, she broke her leg pretty bad at Texas, which is the reason why she left, and uh, she's been here. I've heard really positive things about her development, but you know, you just don't know with leg injuries sometimes, especially with tall players. Um, you know, you've got a Niara Sabali, Satu's younger sister. Uh, a, how does she recover? B, does she decide that she wants to stick around for another year with her sister gone? I mean, I would assume so, but I, I haven't heard anything definitive on that. Um, and, and then your yeah, Taylor Chavez is, is a really interesting piece that, again, you know, with all these star players, with the, with the big three Oregon's had, there just hasn't been much opportunity for these players yeah. or much need for these players to really step into uh, the, the spotlight. So it's going to be interesting to see that, and it's going to be interesting to see how these these true freshmen uh, integrate their way into the the roster and the lineup. If this group is as good as the rankings suggest they are, this could be a group that you know you've got multiple double digit scorers or players playing twenty five to thirty minutes from that group. So um, I think it's really going to be fascinating. I think you're going to go into that season with, I think, kind of maybe holding back some expectations. I think you're right. I think they could be an Elite Eight caliber team with, with the coach they have, with the experience that even some of these players have in big moments, even though they weren't maybe super integral pieces. They weren't the star players. But you're right. Like an Aaron Bowley will have had two Final Fours probably she'll have played. And plus she was on the Notre Dame team, I think, that won a title before she transferred. So I mean, she's got a lot of, she's been in big moments before and you're going to have a number of players with that experience. It's just not in these roles. So that's what's going to make 2020, 21 so exciting. Um, maybe we should stop looking that far in the future considering there's still a, a national championship run, I think, ahead of this program, uh, this season. Yeah. And that's, that kind of segues into this week. Don't want to talk too much about California just because this is going to be a bloodbath. The reality is Oregon is significantly better. Uh, than work, than California is in, in women's basketball. And honestly, I'd be shocked if they don't win by 20. It, yeah. I mean, it, it would, it would almost feel like a loss if they don't win by 20. Um, that's just how good Oregon is and where Cal is at, at a, as a program. That being said, Oregon is dealing with some kind of injury with Taylor Chavez. She did not play in the team's, uh, most recent game, which was a win at, I believe, USC. On yep. Sunday, and what's the latest there with Taylor Chavez? Because she is such an in- important piece to this team off the bench. 
Yeah, she's she, for those who aren't familiar with her, she's the Pac-12's top three-point shooter right now. She's shooting in conference play over 52% from distance, which is a pretty pretty impressive kooky number, honestly. Um, sounds like, and fans may remember, you know, if you're if you're new to following this program, you wouldn't remember this, but if you followed last year, you know, Chavez was hurt with this exact same injury right around the same time last year. It's a it's a foot injury. It's the same foot. Um, she's kind of re-aggravated it. Uh, you know, speaking with Coach Graves at media. Yesterday, um, it sounds like they feel pretty good that they caught this one sooner than they did last year. Last year, they had to sit her out for the rest of the year. And Graves has said a couple of times that, you know, if they would have had her in the lineup and Ruthie Hebert would have been healthy. Remember, she was kind of dinged up last year during that tournament run that maybe that they would have won the whole thing. He said that a couple of times. But um, it doesn't seem he seems pretty optimistic that Chavez will be not effective long term now. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked to see her miss the Cal game. You know, he, he, there's had, no had reason enough. to play her. Right. You know, and he, he didn't say that, but he did say he hadn't talked with the trainers, but you're right in terms of like, don't be shocked if that's a game where they go, we're going to be fine without her. Let's give her another day's rest. The, the, the Stanford game is played on a Monday. So there's actually a pretty big break in between, um, in terms of that might be beneficial to give her three extra days. That could be something that could really be helpful. Um, but I would be, I would expect you'd see her against Stanford. And if you don't see her against Stanford, this might be a thing where we're revisiting this whole scenario and what's going on with her next week with Coach Graves. He did seem optimistic this week, but it's a foot injury. Uh, you never like to hear that an injury that cost a player 10, 11 games a year ago has kind of re-aggravated it. Um, but there does seem to be a lot more optimism this time around that this isn't going to be a thing that, that lingers and doesn't, isn't a thing that costs her. Um, potentially postseason play because I think that would be a really, really big loss. What has been, I think, really important this year is that you've been able to give Sabrina and Mignon and, you know, even Satsu and Ruthie some breaks because of the depth you have in the backcourt and in the frontcourt. Chavez is a crucial piece to that depth in the backcourt. And if you don't have her for a tournament run, you might be in a situation where once again, you're running Sabrina and some of these guards a little bit ragged. Yeah, that's going to be that, – that, that's why I don't think she plays because the risk and the reward is not worth it when you b- balance those two things in. What if she comes in – I mean, you're getting getting Sunday off and you throw her out there on Monday and <clears> – <throat> excuse me. And she even just plays maybe just, you know, 15 minutes in that game or 10 minutes in that Stanford game. And that's more than what you had against a USC team. And – those 10 minutes can can be critical for Sabrina to get a rest or somebody else on the team to get a little bit of a, of a rest. And it's not worth having her miss three or four more games to beat California because even with or without her, you, you still should win by 20 or more points. Can't, I can't really argue that point. And, and really quickly, I think we're going to pivot to something else. We should say um, Monday's game with Stanford remains huge for the Pac-12. Yes. It will basically determine if Oregon can three-peat or not. So if you're – and maybe a casual Oregon basketball fan and, and you don't watch all the games, that's a game you should be uh, preparing yourself for. I think it's on ESPN2 Monday at, at 6 p.m. So uh, be ready for that one if you're an Oregon women's basketball fan of any sort. It's a, it's a Pac-12 championship determining game, basically. Oregon wins that game. They win the conference for the third straight year, which would be the, the first time in program history. It's probably pretty obvious um, considering how good Stanford's been historically. But the first time in program history, if Oregon beats Stanford, that, that Oregon will have won the conference three straight years. I like the fact that it's a Monday game. That's the second big Monday game of the year for Oregon. Um, conference is doing a little bit more of this for women's basketball, and I'm all, all in favor of it. More exposure, 
puts them on ESPN more. Um, and on top of that, I'd like to, I'd like to see both the men and the women try and find ways to get more into Monday and Tuesday games. So good for the women to get on a Monday, big Monday game again for the second time this year. Now let's go to the last bit of this segment of the show, football. Um, Pro Football Focus recently released their way too early top 25. They've also now done um, their top 10 players returning for the 2020 football season. And I don't think anyone is shocked that Panay Sewell is the number one player in the Pac-12. Um, he's going to be in contention uh, for one of the best players in the country next season. He won the Outland Trophy this year, which is given to the best offensive lineman in the country. Um, just overall an amazing player. No one is shocked, I think, that Panay Sewell is the number one player coming back in the Pac-12. But I think, Eric, I was a little shocked, but also kind of like, yeah, I could kind of see it, that Oregon has three of the four best players coming back in the Pac-12, and five of the ten best players coming back in the in the Pac-12 for 2020. Yeah, I, I, I would go for it. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I, I was maybe not surprised that they had as many players, but maybe just of what the rankings were because uh, we, and we'll run through this right now. I'll, I'll run through it. Javon Holland comes in second, right behind Penne Sewell. This is the one that I was a little surprised with. Mikhail Wright, who was not even a full-time starter. Obviously, great on special teams was really tremendous, even in kind of a, I don't want to say a secondary role, but kind of not, not a full starting role. He's the fourth best player, according to PFF, coming back this year in the entire conference. Um, you know, he's a freshman last year, obviously a lot of upside there, but the fact that he's number four and number seven is Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, the other highly regarded freshman, and number eight is Thomas Graham. Like, I, I was, I, I'll say, I wasn't shocked to see Oregon well represented here, especially defensively. They have some major star power, star power. Um, we've talked about what they have coming back. Um, I was probably a little bit more surprised with just the, the order of it because I would have expected Thibodeau to be probably in the top five and for Wright to maybe not be in the top five. Um, and Javon Holland, I think, is someone that maybe almost we almost overlook him, even though we talk about him as such a great player. But the fact that um, PFF thinks he's the, the second best player coming back in the conference and the best defensive player, that speaks a ton of, of what their perception of. Is were were you like me, Matt, when you saw that Mikhail Wright was number four and that that was maybe the biggest surprise, or what surprised you most? Um, I certainly think Javon Holland's going to be a guy that will go pro after this season, twenty twenty football season, and will get picked somewhere um, in one of the second, third, or fourth round. Um, probably not the fourth round, second or third round. Maybe maybe he grows into a first round pick. Maybe, um, but if he's this good. Already, he's certainly going to be in the discussion. So I'm not really surprised that Holland is second. I probably would have thought someone else would have been there. Um, but that being said, like, I'm not, like, blown away by it. But, yeah, Mikhail Wright checking in at fourth, ahead of a guy like Diomede Lenore, who has been a two-year starter and starts ahead of Mikhail Wright. Not only is Mikhail Wright ranked as the fourth-best player in the Pac-12, there's a guy that starts ahead of him that's not listed on this group. Like that's, that's impressive. Um, I I would have if you told me there was going to be a, a freshman uh, from Oregon's defense not named Kayvon Thibodeau that would have made the group. 
I would have said it would have been Verone McKinley, um, not Michael Wright, because Michael is really good, and I 100% think he's going to be in the NFL in two more years. Um, I just didn't think he played enough to warrant that, but maybe maybe PFF is coming out and saying like, look, we've seen enough. We think he's we think he's this good, and he's going to be a guy that's going to be a reckoning, you know, in the secondary for Oregon for years to come. Yeah, I mean, the, the stats that they, if you go read, and, and, and these are good stories because it's all these in-depth pieces, and especially with the season a couple months away, it puts things into their perspective. But um, some of the stats, you know, of the 25 instances where he was close enough to make a tackle, he didn't miss a single one of them. I, you know, I always think of him as being a really good coverage player. I don't know if I recognized how sure of a tackler he was. And I think that was something that was said about him when he came in, but that just was something I didn't focus on. The fact that he didn't miss like a single tackle all season yeah. is, is, is really, really impressive. Um, and, and it has the fact that he only played 306 snaps last season, which is, I shouldn't say only, but that's 25 maybe snaps a game over the course of a 14 game season. Um, that's, that's, about half the snaps. You know, he didn't play a, a huge number each game. Maybe that's two-thirds of the snaps in some games, depending upon the opponent you're playing. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting. But it also, I think, again, provides context for why he's in position to maybe have a big season. And you're right. I hadn't even really considered the fact that, yeah, he's above two guys who start above him in Diamond Lenore and Thomas Graham. And maybe this should be an indication that when we enter spring, we should be paying more close attention to the fact that could Wright be a candidate to jump these two guys who just a couple, you know, about a month and a half ago announced that they'd be coming back for their senior seasons. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, Cristobal has said for the longest time, right, that competition is what they, that it's what they focus on and let the cream rise to the top per se. Um, really, really strong group here. The set, you know, we, we've said this before on the podcast multiple times that Oregon secondary is going to be really good. Um, in 2020. And this just, I think, provides more validation for that. Now, real quick, before we wrap up the show, I didn't, we didn't discuss this at all mm-hmm. as part of this segment here. Um, what player will make this list that's not on it from Oregon? Like, if there's going to be a guy that's not on this group that's top 10 in the conference, who makes this list? My, the first name that came to my head, and I thought through offense, and I really couldn't think of somebody offensively. I just think there's too many question marks. But it was Brady Breeze with just the way he finished last season. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see because that's a, another position group that's loaded. Safety, just like corner, is, is super, super loaded. They're going to be really competitive for playing time, I'm sure. A guy like Farron McKinley, who you mentioned, being somebody that could have been, you know, around Mikhail Wright's spot, or at least one of those guys mentioned. Um, he could be a guy that doesn't even get a starting spot because of how loaded they are. I mean, he kind of lost at the end of last season, or he did lose it, I should say. Um, I, I like a Brady Breeze there. I, I think he played at such a high level, always making plays. He's a senior. I think he's figured stuff out. If they kind of give him a whole year uh, for what we saw over a four- or five-game period to end this last season, if they give him a full season in 2020, I think he could do some really special things. So that would be my pick. I think offensively, if I was picking anybody, um, maybe – a CJ Verdell, if the running game is really, really good this year and he takes a step and he can stay healthy, I think that's the big thing for him. Like, I think he would be somebody maybe considered for a list like this, but he missed about half of the second halves in Pac-12 play, and you just can't do that. So if he can stay healthy and focused, he'd be my offensive pick probably. I was going to say Tyler Shuck. Yeah, that's a that's a lofty pick. What, you're that confident. Well, 
Well, I think he's going to put up big numbers at quarterback. I think quarterbacks are always kind of valued at a high rate. Um, even though this list, does it even have a quarterback? It has Keaton Slovis at six. Yes, and yeah. that's the only quarterback that makes the list. Um, I honestly think one of these working guys is going to fall off. It's just, you know, whatever reason. I'm not saying they're going to be bad players. I just, I just think someone will emerge that we don't know about that will take a spot. I think. Some, you know, one or two other guys that's not an Oregon player will, will probably fall off. Um, like a, like a Brant Keithy at a tight end at Utah. I mean, they lose their quarterback, they lose their tight end. I mean, they're, they're running back at Utah and now everyone will focus on Keithy, the tight end. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit if his production just goes down because new quarterback and all the, all the, the entire defense is focusing on stopping him. When it used to be stopping Zach Moss and then stopping, uh, Tyler Huntley. And oh, by the way, they also lose, um, their two best receivers. So like, yeah, that would be a guy where I could easily see falling off this list just because from a production standpoint. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Tyler Shuck might, might be able to get on here. Like, look, I'm, I'm all in on the Shuck train. If he doesn't win the quarterback job, I'm gonna look like an idiot. But <laughs> I, I, but by the way, Matt, I'll be the, I'll be in the same boat. We'll both look like idiots. We've both been saying this for a really long time. So if if he if he does not win, if Jay Butterfield's the quarterback, we're gonna look really silly in about six months. <laughs> but I think that just, that would also just tell you how good Jay Butterfield is, maybe. But I, I think I think Tyler Shuck would be a guy I would put on there. Maybe um maybe a Brady Breeze or a Nick Pickett. I mean, Pickett's gone under the radar for a while. Um, at, in his career at Oregon, and I think he's really good. Is he top ten good player in the conference? I don't know, but maybe as a senior he makes that jump. So certainly a ton to watch for, a lot to discuss throughout the offseason. Oh, by the way, spring football started, right? Or it's going to start, excuse me. We, we should say that on the podcast. I don't know if we've announced no. on a podcast. Yeah, March 5th. First day of spring practice, same deal as last year where they do five uh, practices and then right before spring break and finals, uh, there is a split for about two and a half weeks and then they come back uh, first week of April for the last 10 um, with the spring game on the 18th. Uh, yeah, so we have a schedule for, for spring practice. We can officially say that. You're going to start seeing more preview coverage for Oregon football spring practice. Plus, when March 5th does roll around, you're going to start seeing actual spring football practice. Personally, I'm pretty jacked up about it because – uh, we've, we've been, it's only been about six weeks since Oregon played a football game, but it feels like it's been six months. So, uh, yeah, we, we have, we have some information on spring football. So if you are a Duck Territory subscriber, if you are not, be available or be prepared to be checking out some actual spring football content in about two, a little less than two weeks from now. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, two weeks away from the start of spring football. Exciting time. You've been listening to the Austin Autos podcast with Eric Scope and Matt Brain. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.